right. Well, um, I'll let guys continue to kind of roll in here. Um, want to talk to you about a couple things before we jump in. Uh, this is so, uh, as many of you know, uh, I am uh, the uh, I, I own a company called the Context Leadership Group, and Pastor Guide is a part of that. Uh, but we do staffing and coaching and consulting as well. And uh, this is the time of year where we uh, tend to sign the most of our staffing deals because um, when we launch jobs, uh, a job usually takes around six months start to finish, sometimes less. Um, I like to overquote rather than underquote, but it's four to six months. Uh, and, uh, and so if you want guys on the ground at your church in the summertime of 23, which is the best time to move, uh, this is the time to sign on to a staffing uh, deal. So we actually have uh, more staffing deals running right now than we have ever had at once. We have eight of them going right now. And uh, it's great. We love to help churches find staff. Uh, and that's everything from worship to campus pastors, to youth pastors, to lead pastors, to executive pastors. And, um, you know, uh, our guys, uh, in fact, I think Pat Cottrell is on here. There's Pat. We are looking for his, uh, his replacement uh, as Pat uh, moves into retirement. Uh, we're looking for a lead pastor for Calvary Baptist in Huntington Beach. So uh, that's going great, by the way, Pat. Uh, and, uh, and so if any of you guys want to move to Huntington Beach, uh, I know a place, a great church. Uh, but yeah, if, if uh, you are looking for staff um, and, and you're not sure if you want to use a staffing company like ours, that's totally fine. Let's jump on a call and just chat about it. Uh, so hit me up, Justin at contextstaffing.com, and we can talk more about that. Um, this is also a great time as you guys, um, <laughs> uh-oh, BK is feeling tempted to Huntington Beach. Uh, we'll talk later, BK. Um, the, uh, uh, as you guys are building your budgets uh, for this year, uh, and, and Pastor Guide, is, uh, we've got modules for how to walk through an annual budgeting process um, that I think is really useful and helpful. Um, but uh, I would say, as you're thinking about your budget for 2023, um, consider your own development in that. You know, all of us need to be getting better at all times. I've had a coach forever, right? For I've been in ministry 20 years. I've almost never had a, never not had a coach. I've always got a coach um, from uh, uh, Steve Ogney to Dave Kraft to Scott Thomas to Brian Howard was my coach for a really long time um, before he was my uh, business partner and friend and now boss. And, um, and so I just believe in coaching a lot. I also believe maybe even more in consulting. And it's something that as I've done coaching over the years and consulting, I've realized I'm a better consultant than a coach because uh, I'm wired to be a problem solver rather than like a slow developer. And so coaching is ten tends to be, how do we get better over time? How do we grow incrementally? Um, consulting is we've got this problem we're trying to solve. Um, and that problem can be as big as we want to get to the next stage. How do we get to the next stage? Um, I just talked to uh, a pastor in Grass Valley, California this week who um, they're, they've got a multi-site thing. But they're not sure how to do it. They want to figure out how to do that well, uh, maybe roll a church off in, as an autonomous church. And so we're going to come in and consult with them and just help them do that. I've got a ton of experience with mergers and multi-site and all that stuff. So if you've got problems you need to solve and you think outside eyes can be helpful, 
let me know. Uh, consulting and problem solving is 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 really one of my strengths, if I can say that humbly. Uh, it's always been a strength of mine to come in, see things really clearly, make a really clear plan and strategy, and help you execute it. So, um, just as you're thinking about next year and the ways in which you and your church are going to get better, um, you know, start to think about how you're going to budget for it, whether that's staff, uh, coaching, consulting, um, you know, or anything else. So, uh, you can you can hit me up. Uh, if you think I could be helpful, or even just for a phone call, uh, you know, uh, Keith, I still owe Keith some coaching. So Keith, you just hit me up anytime, man. Uh, we'll do some coaching. So, um, all right, well, let's jump in to today. We are wrapping up our uh, series, our playbook series that we've been doing for quite a while now. This is, uh, I think, lesson seven in this series. Let me see. Yep. Number seven. Uh, and so we have talked about, let's see, let's more get better, talk about getting better about how this new cultural moment is going to require us to be sharper, uh, to have uh, fewer cracks in our uh, systems and structures. Um, it's going to, it's going to force us to preach better, lead better, pastor better, shepherd better, counsel better, assimilate better. Uh, develop leaders better. We're just going to have to get better, right? The audience that we have, and and I, I know some of the language that I use sometimes. Not that I'm cursing, but I think sometimes business language can sound like cursing to some of us. Um, you know, I, I get uh, I get that we're doing something different. You know, I'm uh, you know firmly uh, you know theologically oriented in my leadership, um, but I also recognize that there are ways in which we can think about the church and the role of the church that aren't aren't actually very theological and they are more kind of cultural or or learned uh sorry if my uh, i'm not going to flip you guys off at least intentionally if my band-aid uh is uh, distracting to you guys i've got a cool dinosaur band-aid because it's the only thing we had i cut my finger today so sorry about that um, but a lot of times the way we think about church we have kind of spiritualized, even though it's not particularly, you know, biblical or theological. Um, and so sometimes when we bring in some business language or just organizational health language, um, you know, guys who have been really helpful to me, like um, uh, Patrick Lencioni in particular, um, committed, committed Christian, um, but brings organizational health language to uh, what we're doing. And so the reality is, is, as culture changes, one of the ways that we can think about that culture change is that our, our audience is changing, our market is changing, the people we are trying to reach are changing, the culture, the city we're trying to reach is changing. And so we've got to change with it. We've got to change our strategies. There was a day where if you lived in the South uh, or in Texas, and you put up a sign that said Southern Baptist, you would get people and you could be terrible at your job, but you would get people because simply it says Southern Baptist. There was a time probably in Southern California where if you put up a sign that said Calvary Chapel, you'd get people uh, because there was a cultural movement uh, towards those things that, that was a, kind of a wind at our back. And that's just simply no longer the case. And so as we um, as we move forward into this new world and this new reality, we've got to reset our expectations. So the first thing we talked about was how, that we need to get better. And really everything 
that we talked about since is a version of get better. Um, but we want to start with the hard one. And, and sometimes that's hard to hear uh, because it feels daunting. It feels challenging to try to get better in every area. Um, but I think that's part of the challenge that lies ahead. So that was that was week one. Week two was get organized, right? Have a really clear plan for how people get connected to you, how people get trained, how people um, go from being non-Christians to fully devoted followers of Christ that are theologically trained, biblically literate, uh, and and leading and uh, and and discipling other people and and how to organize systems and structures like that. In fact, that's one of the things that we do with Context Leadership Group is I'm a systems builder. And so, you know, one of the questions that I often, when we do uh, church health assessments, one of the questions I'll often ask the church is, hey, how does someone learn the books of the Bible, right? Like a new Christian. Uh, how would someone who has been a Christian for two years learn, uh, you know, about um, eschatology or learn about uh, election or learn about whatever, right? And uh, often it's like, well, we, all, we had this one class or, um, you know, we taught about it in a sermon series or the most common answer is, well, in a small group. And so my follow-up question is always, okay, first, does small group leader know that, that that's their responsibility? And two, have you trained them towards that, right? Do they have the, the ability to do that? Um, and then third, is it happening, right? And so um, it's totally fine if the answer is small groups. That's great. Um, as long as the small group leader knows that that's their job and they are equipped to accomplish that job and they're doing that job. Otherwise, our discipleship becomes reactive, spotty, and, and most people's kind of discipleship map is looks like Swiss cheese. It's got big holes in it, and the only things that have been addressed are the needs and crises in their lives. And so building really uh, clear, systematic approaches to discipleship, to leadership development, to connection and assimilation um, is a huge part of, of what we need to do because more and more and more, the people that are coming to our churches don't have a church background. So they don't know how to do it, right? If I'm visiting a new church, I walk in, I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for kids ministry check-in. I'm looking for the donuts and coffee. And then I'm going into the sanctuary and sitting in the back row, right? Like I know how to do it. I know how the whole system works. Um, and I can walk into almost any church and the system works basically the same way. There might be, you know, tweaks here and there, but 80% of it's the same. A person who's never grown up in church, they're scared, they're nervous, they don't know anybody, and they don't know how the system works. And so we've got to build systems that are really clear, really user-friendly, so that the, you know, the gospel is a big enough obstacle to people. We don't need to add uh, funky systems and, and, uh, and, and gaps in our systems um, to those obstacles, okay? Um, so I was two. Number three was to get cheaper. We want to talk about how can we um, more efficiently use our resources because I think our resources are going to be drying up over the next decade or two. And so how do we become more efficient with the use of our resources? And that's time, talent, treasure, because we're pastors. We've got it. It's all got to alliterate. Um, it's all of it, right? Capital, our resources, everything that we have, how do we use those things? And we need to get cheaper. We need to get more efficient. We need to put dollars towards things that multiply ministry. Uh, and so we talked a lot about how to do that. 
Number four was get stable. A lot of that was controlling what we can control, right? So um, by the way, all of this was a uh, the kind of the talking version of a blog series that we did. And all those blogs are at contextstaffing.com. Um, so if you want to go there and, and reread any of this stuff, it's all there. Um, number four was get stable. And get stable was about controlling what we control, namely uh, facilities. It's number one. Uh, how, how do we, you know, those of us who meet in public spaces, I think in, those are going to be increasingly rare that we can use them and increasingly more unstable um, if, if we say the wrong thing and, and the winds of culture go against us in your in your city. Then, and I, and I encourage you, don't rely on relationships you have with principals because usually the buck doesn't stop at the principal. And when the school board says what it says, the principal is not going to back you, right? Like they, they, they just aren't, and or at least I don't think you can depend on that. So um, Get Stable was a lot about that. It was also um, a lot about uh, understanding your people. So I, I actually think as much as Get Stable is not, you know, the sexiest uh, idea and it didn't get us the largest crowd on Pastor Guide Call, um, I really think it's important because one of the lessons we all learned from COVID was we don't know when our people are going to go crazy. And we don't know how they're going to go crazy. And we can't predict how they're going to go crazy. We have lots of people in our churches that went crazy around masks or went crazy around Trump or went crazy around whatever. And I don't even mean they had an opinion. I mean, they went crazy. And, and they went crazy in ways that we probably couldn't have predicted. People that we've known and loved and worked with for a long time all of a sudden are leaving our churches so angry because we put our mask on or we wouldn't put a mask on or whatever. I mean, it was insane. And so one of the big things about Get Stable that I think is, is probably one of the most valuable things to come out of this whole series, actually, and it's kind of sneaky valuable, is that we need to understand where our people are on these issues. And, and that shouldn't, I mean, there's like a, this, this tough balance here where we need to make sure we understand and are relationally connected and having conversations with our most influential leaders and our biggest givers. Um, because not that we want to, you know, kind of uh, bend to their will. We don't. We still need to have, you know, uh, you know, the the, the uh, uh, selfhood, the courage to be and say what we believe, um, and that have that intention with. Um, I, I, the illustration I used was a good lawyer never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to, right? And so I think as a good pastor, we should never say anything or make a decision that we don't know what the fallout's going to be, right? So if you're ever going to do a building campaign, uh, it would be very wise of you to first go to the 10 to 20, depending on the size of your church, 50 uh, people in, in your church who would be most likely to give to that campaign or uh, not give, and that would be a problem, and, and talk to them privately about it uh, and get their feedback before you ever do the campaign. Now, um, it shouldn't, one person's opinion should never decide, make, you know, decide what, you, what you're going to do. But if you hear that one of your biggest givers is not excited about the giving campaign and not going to give to it, um, you just got to know that going forward. Like if we do this giving campaign, it means the Johnsons are not going to give. And that probably means $100,000 that's not coming or whatever it is. So the same thing is true with these cultural issues. Before you stand in the pulpit and talk about Christian nationalism, or you talk about transgenderism, or you talk about whatever. Um, I'm not saying you should say what they want you to say, or only say the things that they're going to agree with. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, don't be surprised by their reaction. Uh, 
So that creates stability, right? The instability is in the ignorance, right? Like, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what's going to happen if I make this decision. That's instability. And I think that there is more instability kind of in the water right now than there ever has been, at least in my lifetime. And so just having your finger on the pulse of where your people are at, and especially your most influential people and biggest givers, um, is really smart. And, and it's, and it's uh, something I, I would prioritize. And again, it's not the sexiest idea, but I think it could save you a lot of headaches. And I think if we had known that, I mean, it's, hindsight's 2020, right? But if we had known beforehand uh, uh, how our, our people would react to masks from Trump and et cetera, uh, we would be in better places now because we would probably would have navigated it a little differently, at least the way we talked about it. So that was number four, get stable. Number five, get smaller. Uh, this one was fairly straightforward, right? Like we just want to make sure that we're creating context for people um, to, to have personal connection, to be relationally connected, because um, there is an increasing amount of stress and pressure on our people when they're out in the world um, to maintain those Christian ethics in a world that has that passed them by. And so getting smaller is not about shrinking our churches necessarily. It's about creating space where people can have real relational connection so that they feel supported and cared for uh, when, when things go bad for them at work. Uh, number six was get together. We talked about mergers. We talked about uh, strategic partnerships. We talked about um, ways in which we can partner together, do mission together, support each other, big churches, little churches, medium-sized churches. Um, I think uh, collaboration and strategic partnerships are going to become more and more and more important, especially, you know, kind of the fallout of some of these things like losing a building. Um, you know, those of you guys who own buildings um, like Pat Cottrell in Huntington Beach, um, like Nate uh, at Little Flock, um, uh, Nate Ashbaugh, I think uh, those of you guys who have buildings that you own, um, man, that's going to be massively important uh, and, and for you to leverage them as an asset for the people around you. So we own this building here uh, at All Souls in, in Burbank and outside of Los Angeles. And we have uh, two and maybe soon to be three other churches using the facility throughout the week, plus a bunch of nonprofits and AA meetings and stuff like that, because it's a private space that we control and we can leverage for ministry. I think that's really important. Okay, that's the recap. Since this is the last week, and I know not all of you guys have been here throughout the week, again, go to contextstaffing.com um, and go to our resource page, and all these blogs are on there. Um, I, I like being able to write about this stuff and then talk about it. It's what we're going to do next, actually, uh, with Pastor Guide, is go through the next blog series. Um, but before we do that, this last week is about getting clear, getting clear. So we've got better, get organized, get cheaper, get stable, get smaller, get together, and lastly, get clear. Now, one of the primary themes, well, let me pause here. If you have questions about any of the previous weeks, this is going to be kind of a larger AMA. If you have questions about any of the previous weeks, um, go ahead and throw those in the Q&A. We'll do Q&A at the end um, uh, because uh, I, I think there's a lot of good questions that, that have come out of this series. Um, and, and I think there will be some even that come out today. I just looked at myself and I'm realizing that I look very yellow today because my window's not open. So I'm going to open my window shade real fast. Don't miss me. That way I'll look so much better to you guys. Oh my gosh. Maybe I look too good now. All right. Uh, last uh, last uh, uh, little module here of this series, get clear, okay? 
the, the primary theme of this whole series and the next one that we're going to do is the future of the church, the future of culture, the future, you know, especially in the West, uh, and the future of church leadership is, is fraught. It is, uh, there's a lot of question marks about what the future may hold. We know for sure that it's going to be different, right? So just a few weeks ago, there was an article in the New York Times advocating for gender reassignment uh, surgery in teens as young as 13, okay? First of all, that's insane. Second of all, uh, I don't know if I've seen a, uh, I know that I have not seen a, an, an issue move more quickly uh, and, and, and more like gain more ground as quickly as this issue of transgenderism. The speed of it is, is really incredible. And it's not altogether surprising, right? When you, uh, again, I've advocated for this book in the past. I'm going to pull it out of my bag. I'm not, my bag's over there. Um, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It is so good. And there's a shorter version of it. If one of you guys uh, remembers what the shorter version is called and want to throw it in the chat, please do. There is a shorter version, but I would recommend if you are a lead pastor, especially take the time to wrestle through this book. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. If somebody wants to throw the Amazon link in the chat, that'd be awesome too. Um, it is so good. Uh, basically, the, the premise of the book is the way we have arrived, the, the, the reason and, and the kind of chronological philosophical process by which we've arrived at this moment in time where people can, um, without, without irony, say, you know, men can have periods too. And, and some of the insanity that, that we're seeing around us, um, it, it, it makes sense, right? Like I, there are moments where I go, this is crazy, this is insane. And then I read Truman's book and I go, oh wait, no, it's not insane. It actually makes perfect sense. That the moment you remove God from the equation or the moment you remove any objective reality, objective truth from the equation, what's left is the self-determining self. And so the highest virtue in our society now is self-expression, unfettered self-expression. That's the highest virtue. And, and the greatest evil in our world is anything that would hem in or restrict or shame that self-expression. Okay, these are the, the virtue and vice in, in our society now. And so when you see like the increasingly insane things that are, that are coming out of our culture, um, I would say one, it's not illogical. It makes perfect sense in uh, when you, once you accept the idea that there is no objective truth and the only true thing is myself, and therefore, the more true I can be to myself, uh, the more virtuous I am. Then it all makes perfect sense. And the second thing I would say is it's never ending, and it eventually it is a snake eating its own tail. Like it eventually just devolves into nihilism, right? Because you, you, you get to this place where you go, I, the, the constant search for, for authenticity and vulnerability, it, it incentivizes you to, uh, to uh, kind of surface every weird thought and weird impulse you've ever had. And if you don't express that publicly and then require affirmation for it, uh, then you're not being your authentic self. And so it incentivizes people to actually mine themselves for the crazy and then express it and then require affirmation. Well, when that's the incentive structure, um, what happens is 
I say something crazy, it makes you think of something even crazier. And then you have to express that and I have to affirm it. But that expression makes me think of something even crazier. And there's this race to the crazy that happens, um, that, that's happening all around us, right? And so that is not going to end anytime soon. And it's having this massive ripple effect in our culture, okay? So in the face of that, the church has to answer some of these questions. And I think there are several schools of thought about how, um, uh, how the church is to respond to this. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not altogether different than the, you know, Christ and culture conversation uh, from the early 20th century. Um, but I think it is manifesting itself in, in different ways. So the schools of thought, and they exist kind of on a continuum, and I'm sure I'll skip your school of thought. I apologize in advance for that. But you have those on the left that have simply kind of acquiesced to the changes that happen in society. And, and instead of like denying God's existence, which is the presupposition for most of this, so they hold on to this idea of God, but they've created uh, this image of him that I call a firmer in chief. Right. And so he just affirms everything, just says yes to everything anybody has ever thought of. And that's that's kind of what's happening on the left. Moving rightward, and I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, but whatever. Um, you have this group of churches who may not uh, overtly affirm these changes, but decides that publicly rejecting them isn't worth the blowback and isn't worth the pain. And so they kind of silently go along. These are the churches that aren't affirming but they don't ever say they're not affirming because they just want to grow the church. They want to do evangelism. They want to do it in such a way that doesn't create any waves or anything. And so even if they are against it, they would never say that, right? And they just kind of keep building their platform. Further rightward are those who reject uh, this movement of culture overtly, but believe that the answer is evangelism and discipleship of individual members of their flock and, and their city, right? So that's the mechanism that we have to, to affect change, evangelism and discipleship. So um, these churches have concerns about the way culture is moving, but believe that those big fights are not the job of the church. Um, lastly, and again, I'm sure, you know, these are big categories, but lastly is uh, churches that are trying to build Christian cities, Christian states, Christian countries through the levers of power uh, that the Constitution has bestowed upon its citizens. We believe, they believe, <laughs> uh, they believe that evangelism and discipleship are not enough on their own and must also be buttressed with a proactive civic and marketplace infiltration strategy, okay? Um, my guess is that uh, those of you who are on this call fall somewhere on the right three, and you're not lefties because usually lefties don't like my um, uh, sarcasm. Uh, but uh, so I, it is likely that you are somewhere uh, on those last three uh, categories. Um, and so here's, here's what we have to do. Um, and this is, this is the get clear idea. I think that category two, the churches that may or may not uh, affirm or deny these ideas but are silent about it, um, are, are playing a, a, they have a very short-sighted view of this. Um, because first of all, uh, it, the culture will not allow you to not have opinion on this thing or, or to, uh, to, to kind of punt on, on answering it uh, overtly. You've got to have an opinion. And, and so I would say that those people have a very short-sighted view of this thing in the, in the long run, it's not gonna work. 
Um, so for the for the two other categories, and I'm, I don't want to get into kind of the nationalism stuff uh, and the implications of that. It's just not what we're talking about today. The, the key the key point I want to make is we've got to get clear about who we are and what we believe and where we're at on these things. I don't think that there is a way around that. We have to get clear and we have to be clear about the way we articulate these things, um, if for no other reason for our people, right? So uh, I'm here in LA, we've got a lot of people in the entertainment industry and we were just talking to a guy on Sunday who we just finished a series called Making Sense of the Nonsense. We talked about race and sex and gender and all the things, right? And um, we, uh, I was talking, we were talking to this guy and he goes, man, it was such a helpful series because, you know, I'm in the industry and it's all just equity and inclusion. It's all, it's all, you know, gender and sexual, all this stuff. It's just, it's all progressive. And I don't know, know what to do. I don't know how to like navigate it at all. I don't know how to articulate what I believe. I don't know how to defend what I believe. I don't, I don't know how to do this. I think maybe the greatest gift we, our churches can give our people in the next 10 to 20 years is the ability to articulate the faith um, in general, right? Um, but then also specifically around these issues, right? And so um, the, the structure or the way that I talk about this that I think uh, could be helpful to you is, is this. Um, we have to demonstrate to our people that, um, that we can move from the Bible to theology, to ethics, to practice, okay? From Bible to theology, to ethics, to practice. Um, there are, uh, I think, you know, in the broader Christian world, there, you know, uh, we are all engaging those four, uh, those four ideas differently, and some are um, doing it uh, partially, right? And I think different movements, different tribes emphasize different pieces of it, right? So I'm Reformed, complementarian. Our world um, does a great job of going from Bible to theology, right? That that Bible theology move is really, really strong, okay? Um, liberals and, 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 and folks on the left uh, work in the world of ethics and practice, right? They, they talk about big ideas about all, you know, the isms, racism, sexism, bigotry, et cetera, and those big ethical ideas, and then work towards practice. Um, I think a lot of times kind of big megachurches and, and kind of vanilla evangelicals kind of go Bible to practice, right? They don't want to do a lot of theology because that feels heavy. Ethics feels like philosophy and, and big ideas. So they want to do Bible verses and then connect it to how, what do I do practice, you know, from Bible to practice. But I think it's really important for us to walk our people from Bible to theology. So taking the scriptures, understanding the scriptures, how to read the scriptures, how to exegete the Bible, even just at a low level, but like how to effectively read the Bible to then how do those biblical verses synthesize into theology and then show how our theology is the foundation for our ethics and these big ideas, and then how those ethics play out in the practical world, okay? And, and here's why. I think what happens is um, in, in the real world, our people are facing practical questions, right, primarily. Um, even though they may be couched as ethical issues, um, it's really coming down to how do I interact with my transgender um, office mate, you know, or how do I um, 
I don't, when I'm sitting in a diversity, equity, and inclusion training, how do I process this information, right? When they're talking about anti-racism or talking about, you know, wherever it is, um, how do I process information? So it's very practical. I think that's where it begins. And I think what most of our people are able to do, and, and I always challenge people, uh, but warn them, like I would challenge you guys, find five random people in your church and just say, hey, um, if you had to, you know, if, if you believe uh, homosexuality is sin and somebody in your workplace, you know, found out that you believe that and said, how can you believe that homosexuality is sin, that gay people are in sin? Um, how would you defend that? How would you answer that question? Like ask five people in your church, how would you answer that question? And prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> prepare to be a little depressed about how they would answer that question. Because my guess is uh, three out of five are gonna have, well, my guess is two out of five are gonna have answers that you're like, that isn't even true. Like that's not even right. Uh, three out of five are gonna have answers that are just really simplistic and and just basically like well the bible says so and then if you ask like okay cool but like where in the bible probably three out of five are going to go yeah romans i've heard <laughs> you know uh it's going to be very depressing maybe one in five depending on your church it's not a critique of you i would say the same thing for our church maybe one in five at best would be able to go well um, so we believe that, uh, you know, people are made in the image of God, God made them in Genesis 1, God made them male and female, but that's the fullest expression of the image of God uh, is, is in the, you know, the communion of, of male and female, and, you know, on and on and on, right, build an actual biblical case that gets woven together into a theological conviction that then informs an ethical idea and then is able to be worked out in practice okay so what happens a lot is our people get an idea homosexuality is bad and then they go okay well then you're and you're homosexual so you're bad and there's this tension of like okay so do i treat you bad do i treat you good but if i treat you good am i uh, am I affirming your homosexuality, right? There's all these very practical questions that I think we, the, the greatest gift we can give our people is clarity around that stuff. Bible to theology, to ethics, to practice. And I think that the best way to do this is by building a proactive, systematic discipleship program, right? So I've talked about this in the past. I'm still, I'm just a big believer that uh, most of us don't have a proactive, systematic discipleship program in our church, right? So proactive simply means I, uh, the way I was discipled was I have a question, I have a crisis, I have pain. Those get addressed, and now I have information about those things. So I have an intellectual crisis or, you know, uh, some, some sort of question about the faith. Um, and, and I go, oh, I don't know. what I got to find that out. And so I go, I go learn that thing. I have some, you know, kind of existential crisis. Uh, maybe it's relational, maybe whatever. Some, some, something happens in my life that doesn't make sense and I have to make sense of it again. And so then I go to the Bible or a pastor or whatever and they help me make sense of it. Um, or I deal with pain, loss, uh, suffering. And it doesn't make sense, doesn't jive with the loving God. And so I have to go make sense of it. So my, my discipleship, the, what I know and have experienced about God is run through this reactive, that's why I call it Swiss cheese, like those big holes. The holes are just the things I've never asked about, okay? 
Um, and then so that that then becomes this systematic kind of thing. So the the reactivity also puts the person in need of discipleship in the place of driving their own discipleship. And for most of our people, they're just not prepared for that. Um, and so they're only going to get answers to the questions they want answers to. So some of them are going to have existential crises. They're going to have uh, intellectual questions. They're going to have pain and suffering. Decide not to get answers and either walk away from the faith or just leave those things unanswered. And they are they kind of function like festering wounds. So we, as the pastors, have to be proactive to go, no, you need this information. You need these practices. You need to be able to connect Bible to theology to ethics to practice. I'm going to help you do that in a systematic way that will look a lot like Swiss cheese uh, and maybe more like cheddar. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to hit everything and all that. But if you don't have a proactive systematic discipleship plan, um, I think you, you do your people a disservice. Uh, by not providing them the, the basis that they need. The last thing I'll say on this before kind of open it up for questions, if there are any questions, not so far, um, is that um, I think everything we do from here on out has to be shot through with apologetics, okay? And I'm not talking about Kirk Cameron using a banana to prove God or something like that kind of apologetics. I just mean... There's nothing you do, whether it's evangelism or discipleship, that cannot have an apologetic element to it that says, here's an idea. I assume you don't believe it. Here's why it makes sense. And it's just attaching the why to everything that we do, um, because there are far fewer structures in our world, intellectual structures, cultural structures that are um, holding up the ideas of Christianity. So, um, you know, Charles Taylor and James K.A. Smith talk a lot about these ideas, the social imaginary, okay, is, is a Charles Taylor um, term. And that all that means is um, the way in which a world conceives of itself, a culture conceives of itself. And so for a long, long time, the social imaginary in the West included an idea of God and an idea of, um, uh, of transcendent objective ethics. Uh, I mean, our, you know, our, our country was built on the idea of, uh, of being created by God, having been given inalienable rights. Those ideas no longer exist, in the, at least not in the same way, but in, in many ways, not at all um, in our social imaginary. And so the, when our people go out into the world, they're not surrounded by uh, people, institutions, structures, you know, media that are affirming those ideas. They are, if anything, cutting them down or ignoring them altogether, okay? So when we say things like Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus walked on water or homosexuality is sin or whatever, um, we have to recognize that those are not self-evident anymore, not to most of our people or at least not to the people around them. And so even if they remain self-evident to our people, um, that idea makes them an alien in our world. And so it's not self-evident to the people around them. And so even if we don't have to convince our own people, we have to give them the tools to be able to articulate those ideas in a way that at least makes sense. Probably won't be accepted. will still probably cause trouble for them. Uh, they might get rejected for those ideas. But 
um, that my, I think some of my greatest fear for our people is that we've put them in a position to say, uh, I believe homosexuality is a sin. Somebody goes, what, why? That's big, that's bigoted. And they go, well, cause the Bible says so. That's not a good answer. It's just not like it's true and it's the foundation. But if, if, the, because the Bible said so, man, we've got to do better than that. Um, our people need to be able to do better than that if we're going to have a, a winsome witness to the world. Um, and if if we're going to equip our people to not second guess, because I think the moment because the Bible said so comes out of their mouth, they go, well, I don't, that's not good enough. And, and then they start to doubt. And so if nothing else, we're just equipping them to be confident that we they can say, well, because here's here's what the Bible says. Because the Bible said so is not a bad first sentence, as long as there are many sentences to come after that. So we've got to get clear as a church about who we are, what we believe, and then we've got to get our people clear about why we believe those things. And I think that that why is crazy important and is only going to become more and more important as, as time goes on. So um, uh, I think that 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 process of Bible to theology to ethics to practice. Um, so I've mentioned this before, but I, we wrote a, um, or kind of our writing, it's not totally done yet, but uh, writing a, um, a, a, a catechism of sorts, that, that proactive discipleship plan, systematic discipleship plan that I talked about, we said about writing that. And um, it, when we were in Seattle, and writing it with a Seattleite in mind. So, you know, it's it's specifically kind of oriented to someone who is surrounded by progressive culture, but starts with the gospel, goes to scriptures, God, creation, fall, redemption, et cetera. And it's, you know, two, a one to two year long, depending on how quickly you move through it, uh, kind of process that hits all the major things. And it moves from Bible to theology to ethics, spiritual disciplines, and, and practice. And so... Um, I, I think having something like that, a system that actually equips our people, Sunday sermons are, are just not enough uh, to actually equip Christians to be able to live Christianly in uh, an increasingly kind of barbaric world, um, uh, oddly enough. So anyway, uh, all right, no questions. Uh, uh, if, if you guys uh, think that this is interesting and want to talk more about it, hit me up, Justin at contextstaffing.com. If there's anything that we can do for you at Context Leadership Group, we'd love to work with you guys. Uh, appreciate your time today. Uh, this wraps up this series. The next series is um, going to be called The Future of Christian Leadership, and it's going to be a little bit more focused on leadership specifically and how to be Christian leaders in uh, this new world and new environment. Uh, I think that that's, that's super, super important. It's a, an expansion of a talk I gave at the Acts 29 National Conference uh, uh, last month, and, uh, and we're turning it into a blog series and, and a pastor guide series, so I'm excited about that. Uh, we did have one question just under the wire, Keith Rodriguez. Outside of the gathering, where do you see these conversations taking place? Um, if by conversations you mean kind of the discipleship stuff, um, you know, we... It, I think the the structure of it matters less than than that you're doing it. That being said, um, in Seattle, we made them, you know, they were groups basically. And we have one uh, kind of mature, without getting into our whole system, um, uh, one mature leader that was able to take 
three ideally so it's usually four because not everybody can be there but three or four five max uh guys gals through um through the curriculum and they were equipped and trained to be like disciplers catechizers um in in the old school kind of model and uh and so i worked closely with those uh, guys and gals to be able to really disciple people and they they worked through it in a group setting um, here at All Souls, we do it in a classroom setting. I think it's less effective in a classroom setting, but um, you can still get some stuff done. So um, whatever the context, whatever the structure of it is, I think just having something that's proactive and systematic so that you can, again, answer the question, how would someone learn how to pray? How would someone learn how to read and understand the Bible? How would someone under, you know, learn... Um, what is sin and and how do we think of sin what is idolatry and why do we call it that you know those kinds of things um what's the and and down to so the way we built the curriculum was uh it's eight modules six lessons per module the first four lessons are theology bible theology the fifth lesson is ethics so like for instance on the creation um module the, we did four uh theological ideas theological lessons about uh, creation the ethical idea was about creation care why theologically we would have this ethical practice of valuing god's creation and then the sixth is a spiritual discipline typically as much as possible tied to that theological idea not always it doesn't always work out that way but like when we did scripture um the so it was four theological ideas about scripture the ethical idea was about telling the truth and why Christians are should be truth tellers and and value the truth. And then the the spiritual practice was reading the Bible. And so um, as much as that can be connected uh, as possible. So um, I don't know if the structure matters as, as much as the fact that you're doing it. So uh, all right, fellas, 1047. I uh, hope you enjoyed this. Hopefully it was helpful. And uh, we'll pick back up uh, in two weeks, uh, praying for you. Let me know if I can serve you. Uh, and, uh, oh, okay. Nate Ashbaugh, fine. You got another question in, uh, would you encourage posting your opinions regarding social isms on social media platforms? Should you use your church as social platforms? No, <laughs> no, uh, I don't think so. It, so the question is, would you encourage posting your opinions? No, my, my philosophy on social media is that social media makes better windows than doors. It's a great way to have a view out to what's happening in the world and the conversations that are happening. It's not a great way to enter in, okay? So it makes better windows than doors. I am a kind of passive, most of my tweets are either uh, articles I've read, Arizona State University football things, occasional jokes that get me in trouble. That's about it. So no. I do not personally recommend having arguments online. I think it's unfruitful. doesn't mean I don't do it. <laughs> it just means I don't recommend it. So, uh, yeah, social media makes better windows than doors. Um, uh, all right. So uh, he agrees. So if we have to have an opinion, where do we plug these? I mean, I, I just I would just focus on your church, man. Like, I, I think too many pastors are trying to pastor other people's people. Pastor your church. Have those conversations with your people. If God's called you to be an influencer or write a book or whatever, great, do that. But if if you're a pastor, pastor your people uh, and, and talk to your people, talk to your leaders, talk to your elders, uh, put it in sermons, 
Pastor your people. Those are the people that you're going to be held accountable for, that God's given you to care for. Uh, talk to those people about those things uh, and, and leave the internet to its own destruction. That's my opinion. All right, guys, I'm out. Have a great week. See you in two weeks. Uh, enjoy your holiday season. See you then.